Good afternoon, everyone, ladies and gentlemen. I'm happy, I will repeat, happy to moderate a panel on the new energy landscape and shipping. So, in this case, we will not be dealing only with regulation and the current fleet uh, developments, but also what happens with geopolitics and how this impacts shipping. And uh, the IEA defines energy security as the uninterrupted availability of energy sources at an affordable price. Energy security has many aspects. Long-term energy security mainly deals with timely investments to supply energy in line with economic developments and environmental needs. On the other hand, short-term energy security focuses on the ability of the energy system to react promptly to sudden changes in the supply-demand balance. Events in Ukraine this time last year resulted in much volatility in the energy transportation sector, creating a risk and opportunity. Energy consultancy Reistad says Russia has added 103 tankers in 2022 through purchases and the reallocation of ships servicing Iran and Venezuela, two countries under Western oil embargoes. The creation of the shadow fleet has received mixed reaction. Tanker owners have also cast in as importers have had to reevaluate supplies. Product tankers rates hit near 20 year highs in 2022 with gains widely attributed to a surge in ton miles as Europe looked to non-Russian suppliers of diesel and other refined oil products. According to tanker broker Gibson, 2023 new building deliveries are running at a 25-year low, with 2024 deliveries also looking to be relatively low. Given the massive amount of container ship and LNG orders last year, most blue chip yards are now fully booked for 2023, meaning the tanker fleet will register minimal growth over the next couple of years. 2023 also looks to set to be a year of regulation with the implementation of CII, EXI, and the number of new regulations that are, are around the corner. Excuse me, but coming from class, I'm too tired to repeat those regulations again and again, but it's definite that we will not be bored and we have exciting times ahead with EU ETS, Fit for 55 and the rest. So carbon pricing will be here and the carbon footprint price will be here for shipping. And these are definitely turbulent times and I'm delighted to have, to have a panel of experts on hand to share their view. Without further ado, I will present, starting with uh, Svening Stolle on my left, uh, Deputy CEO of Agelikusis Shipping Group, then Christian Ingerslev, CEO of Marsk Tankers, Nicolas Chakos, founder, CEO and president of 10 LTD, Bruce Paulson, partner of Stuart Kissel, and Eric Grossman, Senior Compliance Officer of the Office of Foreign Assets Control of the U.S. Department of Treasury. So, having said that, I will start with a wider content question to Svening, uh, Nicolas and Christian. On Sunday, the 5th of February, the EU banned seaborne imports of Russian oil products. Admittedly, it's early days, 
but what are the impacts you foresee? And wants to go first, Sven? I can go first. <clears throat> thank you very much. Um, first of all, uh, thank you uh, to Capitalink for inviting me. Very nice to be here. Um, I think the effect of um, the ban on the Russian refined oil products is going to be exactly the same as the ban on crude, namely that the products will not go to the market which it should have gone to, which is Europe, but go to Asia. And then Asian refiners and exporters will send more or less the same volume back to Europe. Um, and the net effect of that is going to be that um, ton mile will go up, and um, I think the rates will go up. Thank you. Thank you, Sveno. What he said. Um, so I think we, we are in a backdrop of a, quite an interesting uh, period for, for tankers because uh, not only are we uh, coming back from COVID and we are seeing demand increase, uh, we've also had uh, the geopolitical uh, challenges with uh, the Russia's invasion in Ukraine from the 24th of February. Um, so we've already seen the supply chain being massively disrupted. Um, and now we're getting further restrictions and those restrictions uh, uh, those sanctions that are coming into play uh, will lead to exactly what Swiner outlined here, that um, distances will get longer um, and uh, supply will get tighter. And with that, uh, it looks from a rate perspective uh, like a very strong fundamentals for, for tankers. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, I want to again thank and congratulate uh, Nicholas for uh, such a high quality panel. You have three Columbia University graduates, uh, one next to the other, and my daughter the next one. So, <laughs> uh, well, I have to say that uh, this, uh, the decade that we are going uh, through right now has been a decade full of surprises. If someone wanted to, to study the volatility of shipping in uh, just a couple of years, uh, all they had to do is arrive uh, on January 1st, 2020, and uh, be here with us until today. Uh, and I know that your company mainly well, uh, has a uh, big uh, reach into the container market. I mean, we have seen things that uh, it takes usually a decade uh, to develop in our business. Uh, I think we are still trying to calm down from the volatility and the changes that are happening. Uh, we would rather, on the energy side, uh, enjoy a lesser market uh, in, a, in a more peaceful world, but uh, I mean we are just uh, we are just the movers of the goods, so we are uh, trying to provide the service that happens at this stage uh, to be appreciated more than, uh, than than usually. So I agree with uh, with my uh, friends here on on the right uh, that it seems that uh, the market has legs, uh, but as as I said, as a, as a human being, I'd rather have the market have. Uh, lesser legs uh, in a more peaceful environment. Thank you. Um, and moving on perhaps to some more technical questions on the price cap, and I will come to Eric. So Eric, the price cap on Russian origin petroleum products went into effect a few days ago. Does that mean it applies to petroleum products which have already been loaded onto any ships? Does it only affect US persons? Does it apply to non-U.S. parties operating outside of the U.S. financial system? Could you please enlighten us? Sure, and uh, 
Thanks again to Kappeling for inviting me and to everyone for being so gracious and uh, talk with me throughout here. Um, so let's talk generally about when the price cap applies. As you said, it was February 5th for petroleum products. Now, if you've already got something on the water before February 5th, the price cap would not apply if that uh, reaches its port of destination prior to April 1st. Now, specifically as to when the price cap applies. The price cap applies once the item is sold for maritime transport all the way through the first landed sale in a jurisdiction other than Russia. Once it clears customs, price cap no longer applies. Now, if it goes back onto the water for transport without being substantially transformed, then the price cap reapplies at that point, and on and on that goes forever. Um, as far as does the price cap affect U.S. persons, this was taken, the, all the price cap was taken as part of a coalition with a number of countries, the EU, the G7, Australia. I can't speak to how those countries are implementing the price cap. For the United States, our U.S. price cap and everything that goes with it only affects U.S. persons, and that would be the U.S. service providers. So if you're a non-U.S. person, the U.S. price cap would not apply. So sticking on the price cap questions a bit, so can you please tell us if the price cap would or would not apply if the products are substantially transformed, and what do you mean by that? And on top of that, uh, can you please enlighten us a bit more about what you mean by covered services and uh, how the price cap impacts how much can be charged, charged for covered services? Sure. So for substantially transformed, it differs depending on the product. If it's crude oil, substantially transformed means a lot of different things. I had to learn a lot of new words for this that I didn't know existed, like isomerization. Still don't know what it means. But we actually have a guidance that has a list of products that would uh, mean it's substantially transformed. Now for crude oil, uh, we don't consider uh, blending operations as being substantially transformed. For petroleum products, it's a little different. Blending operations might count as substantially transformed if it results in a change in the tariff code. So if you do the blending operation and it results in a change in the tariff code, then it's substantially transformed. Uh, as far as uh, the price for the covered services, well, covered services first, those are also delineated in our price cap guidance. I recommend everybody, if you just Google OFAC price cap guidance, it's usually the first result. Uh, you can read that. But we basically mean anybody who's providing a uh, covered service, which would be a maritime-related service, to the maritime transport. Now, the price cap doesn't affect how much you can charge for those services. It's only on the price of the underlying product. Um, importantly, we would recommend that you invoice the covered service and the item separately because OFAC would view the artificial inflating or deflating of the price of the service to make up for that delta between the uh, price cap price and the market price of the goods. The artificial inflating or deflating of the cost of the service might be viewed as a sanctions evasion attempt. And so that's something we're keeping an eye on. Um, there is one other thing I want to mention about covered services. is The price cap does not apply if the only US party involved is an intermediary financial institution. That way you can be sure that uh, the US dollar can still be used for these transactions if that's the, its only role in them without being subject to the price cap. Thank you, Eric. And now moving back to our main focus, 
the market. And I will address a question again to Nicolas, Christian, and Zweinu in that order. Given the low rates of tanker new buildings to be delivered in the next few years, and I mentioned a few numbers from Gibson, how was the S&P landscape for tanker tonnage impacted? What risks and opportunities do you feel being present? And especially, Nicolas, you've placed, an order, you've placed orders recently about tankers. Is there something you see in this landscape that really dictates that we should be ordering more? Sure. Well, as, uh, as I was uh, saying many years ago, when I was uh, chairman of Intertango, I think uh, we should avoid ordering ships uh, out of speculation. And, and I think this is what uh, we have been doing. Uh, there are enough ships out there, enough good quality ships. Uh, the major oil companies choose, uh, I would say, uh, operators uh, that they can trust to run ships that are 10, 12, or 15 years old right now. And uh, I mean, I look at some of our ships, which the majority of the fleet we operate uh, of about 80 tankers, uh, if not all, have been uh, built for us, by us, uh, initially, so I go back to those ships and they look, uh, instead of 15 years old, like a two, three, five-year-old ship. So ships were, were meant to be built for 20, 25 years. And I think that's what uh, we're doing now. We're taking advantage of good quality tonnage uh, of, that, uh, of that generation. We as a company, we will only build against long-term contracts uh, to our major end users. Christian. Can you please add to the question? Can we aspire to complete the life cycle of ships from now on based on the landscape of transition that we are going through as well? Well, if I had the answer, I would be a very wealthy man, but um, I can give my perspective at least. Um, so, look, shipping, like most other industries, is, is very cyclical. And uh, the ship owners, in many ways, act very rationally. So markets are very attractive at the moment, and for that reason, people prefer to invest in vessels that are underwater. Uh, that's also why we've seen a, a, a marked transition from ordering new buildings to ordering uh, or to buying second-hand tonnage. Uh, now, we will see periods of underinvestment, and uh, I think that period we're going to go that we are in will be quite extensive. Um, and particularly for tankers, and I think that might be different from other segments because not only do we not know what propulsion to use, we also don't know what to sail with uh, because as we go through an energy transition, we will see demand decline. Um, mm -hmm. I think to, to add to that, I think some of the banks in the room will tell us that investing into a a fossil fuel conventional uh, carrier that is delivering in three years and uh, will have a useful life for another 25, it's really a hard investment case. Mm -hmm. uh, but I actually think that provides a lot of opportunities and that's the joy of being here in Athens. There are a lot of families uh, and I think that if you have access to capital, then there's actually a lot of opportunities within this space, uh, also on the new building front over time. But it comes with the caveat that uh, new building prices at the moment are above historic average. So I think, again, owners are acting rationally. You, you don't want to order new buildings now unless, as you hear from Nicholas, you get some sort of long-term coverage uh, from an end user. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And Svainu, before we come to you, just want to add, you are also having uh, a 
very wide experience with the LNG sector. And in the LNG sector, we are going through a super cycle for some years now. Some of us are already exhausted, and the yards are, have promised to build more ships than they ever planned to build. And this doesn't seem to stop, and we have old ships that are of uh, older technology and cannot be replaced with the current market conditions. How, how does this landscape progress? And are we walking again into an energy crunch that perhaps will be triggered by lack of availability of this, the, the shipping supply chain? <clears throat> Thank you, Panagiotis. Um, let me see where to start. Uh, I think first, um, as a group, Anglicusis, we have today 143 vessels on the water, roughly one-third dry LNG and tankers. So clearly, that gives you a large spread in terms of types of vessels and also ages and technologies, which means that when you think about fleet renewal, um, you need to take quite a wide perspective. Um, so I think that at the moment, back to your original question, the shipyards are full, mainly caused by the huge container boom for the last three years, and also the very, very large uh, ordering of LNG carriers. Um, that means that prices are high for new buildings. This has also caused prices for vessels on the water to, to follow that trend upwards. Uh, I think uh, for existing vessels, clearly the effect of the war in the Ukraine has also had a significant effect on prices of existing vessels because the need for Russia to buy vessels in order to transport both their refined and their crude products. On the question on what to do today, I mean, the last time I looked, I think the Suez Bank's order book was 1.5%, and for VSCCs, I think it was slightly above 2. It has never been that low, but the prices are high. Christian said uh, our business uh, works in cycles. It does. Uh, will, will the high prices stay forever? No, they won't. They always come back down again. So what we need to do is obviously to have capital available and spend it wisely when the time is right. For LNG, I think I've been in the LNG business for a long time. This is the biggest order book ever, 290 vessels on order. So is that the end? Um, there are still orders tickling in, so, but not to the, the big volumes that we've seen, especially from Qatar. So I think we'll see the and we've seen, the, we've seen the top of the curve. And then after that, we'll see what happens. But I think there will be availability and some good opportunities in the time to come to place more orders. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Spin. And trying to come back to the geopolitic element as well, I will come to Bruce. And Bruce, I would like you to perhaps expand a bit, not only on Russia, there are other countries that are under sanctions regimes. So how are your client, tanker clients navigating the evolving sanctions and the geopolitical environment? What are the worries you hear more? Well, thank you very much. I mean, there's, 
a lot of worries at the moment. Before I get into them, though, uh, I learned just this Tuesday that the notion of economic sanctions originated in ancient Greece. I'll thank George Simmons for teaching me this on Tuesday, where I sat on another panel. Uh, and not only, you know, who was not nobody in ancient Greece, it was Pericles, who in 432 BC issued the Megarian Decree, which is the first use of economics as a foreign policy tool. The Megarians had apparently trespassed on the sacred land of Demeter and killed an Athenian herald. The decree blocked the Megarians from trading in any port of the Delian League, and this uh, isolated the Megarians and damaged their economy. So this is not a new concept. Uh, the impact had, uh, you know, an uncertain Im uh, 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 impact on the uh, start of the Peloponnesian War, which is debated to this day. They have not recovered since. <laughs> there we have it. So. Our, our clients, uh, you know, have been concerned an awful lot about Russia. The Russia sanctions rolled out in head-spinning fashion in 2022, following the commencement of the invasion of uh, Ukraine uh, on February 24th. Um, recall that there are essentially three types of sanctions. Primary, think Iran, think North Korea, think Cuba. Uh, secondary sanctions, where the U.S. seeks to legislate extraterritorially uh, against foreign entities, and sectoral san sanctions issued uh, against particular business sectors. Iran, as a uh, uh, primary sanction, think full embargo, is still an issue in the tanker business. And there is still enforcement. Essentially what happens is that enforcement continues until there is a formal change of policy. And although there have been discussions about some other new form of agreement with Iran, uh, there isn't one yet, and uh, enforcement continues apace. There are actually primary sanctions involved, too, in uh, or as a result of the uh, invasion of Ukraine. Donetsk and Luhansk were added uh, where there are near full embargo, embargoes to Crimea, which was added in 2014. Um, there are new directives starting in February of last year against the finance, energy, and defense sectors of the Russian economy. There are full blocking sanctions against banks and operating companies. There are central bank sanctions. There's the U.S. oil import ban, to which the covered services under the old cap is, are an exception. There have been numerous designations of what we call specially designated nationals or blocked persons, SDNs, people on the SDN list. This is perhaps the biggest part of the Russian rollout of sanctions. There are correspondent account prohibitions. There, there are prohibitions on providing things like accounting services to Russian entities. You send a, a statement to your Russian client, are you providing accounting services? There are prohibitions on uh, luxury goods. There have been a lot of issues, and this goes back to the uh, SDN designations, particularly for our investment management clients who aren't necessarily in the shipping space, but they invest in it. Uh, and they'll call up and say, hey, we've got one of these oligarchs who has uh, shares in our fund you might have a U.S. investment manager. You might have a Cayman fund. You're going to have an intersection between U.S. sanctions law, Cayman law, which adopts U.K. law, which with the EU also rolled out massive amounts of Russian sanctions starting last February. And they are sometimes contradictory with U.S. sanctions, which can be quite confusing. There's also been a lot of self-sanctioning. 
parties have gotten out of the market afraid to trade uh, in trades that they used to engage in before the invasion. And of course, the price cap, which I'm happy to talk about too, but Eric has covered well. Yeah, so having heard all this and the, the long list of possible sanctions, what compliance steps should owners and charters take to assure themselves against this regime? Well, I think that, you know, shipping has gotten religion over time with OFAC compliance. It's taken some time. I remember a conversation with a tanker owner years ago saying, you know, you lawyers and accountants sit behind desk, desks and tell me about risk. I put men and ships to sea. I know about risk. But at the same time, there are risks in this space. And you need a tone from the top. Uh, and you need a compliance program. And if you ever get in trouble, that's going to be your first defense with OFAC. Um, so I would re refer everybody in this room to the uh, 2019 compliance uh, guidance issued by OFAC, which stress five main issues, management commitment, risk assessment, internal controls, testing and auditing, and training, so that you have a risk-based compliance program that comports with today's sanctions uh, landscape. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. And so I'd like us now perhaps to jump to the end question. Perhaps we'll have the chance to expand a bit more on these issues. Getting back to regulations and how do we integrate regulation in this new energy landscape. So the new, the, the way new regulations are introduced, and especially CII, implies that many parties will be working collectively in addressing efficiency. And it's not only about the ship now, we're talking about the overall value chain. Have we really seen this working? And perhaps if not, because we, we have not been used uh, yet to these new regulations, do you see the projection and the will and the appetite to make it work between different parties. So this is for, let's try with Christian this time. Thank you. Um, so I do actually think that uh, ship owners want to collaborate. Uh, and I would like to, uh, to split it into a, a couple of themes. Um, so one is uh, our company uh, operates within commercial management of product tankers. And we've seen a marked increase in the number of owners who come together in commercial management collaboration. Uh, the average product tanker owner globally owns 3.8 ships. And needless to say, with increased uh, regulation, with increased complexities, then a lot of this becomes quite challenging and it becomes quite difficult to optimize uh, commercially uh, with that size. So uh, we are seeing uh, across the board that, uh, that more people come together, and I think that's uh, not only good for handling regulations, it's, it's good for uh, reducing emissions, it's good for uh, investing into new digital initiatives and reducing fuel consumption. So, so that's one aspect of it. And then I actually think that there's a lot of companies who recognize uh, that these challenges cannot be solved on their own. They simply have to come together. That's really led to the growth of the, the Global Maritime Forum, the Getting to Zero Coalition. There's a similar initiative in, in Singapore. Uh, you now have uh, a number of initiatives, uh, being the Poseidon Principle for Banks, uh, the um, Sea Cargo Charter, where we report emissions. There are a lot of people coming together. 
the challenge for all of us, I think, is we don't know what the end solution is. And it would be really nice if we knew what we were exactly working towards. Um, but I think we are all recognizing that, that, that coming together helps. And I think a lot of us, uh, and, and most, are willing to do just that. Thank you. Uh, Spainum? Yes, thank you. <clears throat> to add to what uh, Christian said, I think, first of all, the new IMO rules with respect to CRI and EEFSI has, has and will create a fundamental change in the shipping market because these new regulations require all ship owners to put in place a very sophisticated digital collection of data for it, each and every ship. And this data you need to report and have available on a continuous basis because to make it very simple, each ship has a rating. If the rating is not A, B, or C, then according to the new rules, you have a problem which you have to address. And if you don't address it, you can lose your class. Now that's the, that's the big uh, you know, uh, hammer that you can get in your head. Uh, obviously, uh, there, are no, there are no financial implications for the time being, but it's, a, it's a, a very serious new regulation that I think, uh, I would say in our company, we've spent several years to put all this in place. We have a, everything in place. We've been able to incorporate this into our latest charter parties. We are collaborating with our charters. Uh, they take this also very seriously, which is very good. And then obviously, uh, with respect to the next phase of this, since these rules now become live from January 2024, I am pretty sure that we will see a two-tiered market, meaning those that follow the rules and those that don't. Because if you end up with vessels which are classed below sea, and you don't have the means to do something about it, and after some time, they will be very, these vessels will be very difficult to put into the market. So this is all open. We don't know what's going to happen, but uh, clearly it's something we have to live with. It's there. We have to stop not liking it. We have to accept it. And uh, hopefully this whole system, which has only one objective, namely to get the emissions down, will work over time. But that is a bit early to say. Thank you. Thank you, Svening. And, and Nicolas just wants to add, do we really uh, fear uh, the, the, the question of those who apply the rules and those who bend the rules? What is your view on this? And perhaps, Apart from all ship owners and ship operators, do you see that appetite to other parties, real appetite to other parties like charters, financiers, etc.? Yes, thank you. Well, as we have, I think, discussed quite uh, in, different, in different forums, unfortunately, shipping is too fragmented to make its own rules. So we have to end up playing with rules other people make uh, for us. So, I mean, this is a challenge, uh, but we are used to it. And sometimes the rules uh, work, like the OPA 90 back in 1990-92, uh, which I think has helped for us tanker owners to reduce, uh, you know, any pollution risk and you know, convert to 99.999%, and, and 
and still better, and some other rules, uh, you know, are ahead of their time, and it takes a, a while for owners to be able to uh, to absorb them. In our case, uh, sometimes it's like navigating uh, a minefield between uh, the rules uh, and regulations, in uh, shipping needs open seas, uh, free seas to be able to flourish. Uh, we depend a lot on our charters, I think like you do, and as you said, uh, there's a lot of pooling arrangements uh, where quality companies get together and uh, uh, in order to make things happen. We navigate according to our first-class charters, and that's why we try to keep uh, ourselves out of trouble for, uh, for the last 30 years that we've been a public company. So, thank you. And being conscious of time, I wouldn't like to spend more on this. I think we've heard some very interesting insights as to how we will navigate through a very complex landscape comprising sanctions, comprising new regulations, comprising a fleet supply-demand balance, which is very challenging. I would like to thank my... Okay, um, Bruce, Eric, do you, do you want to add something, something that was missed by the, the conversation? Yeah, I would just say if anyone ever has any questions about OFAC sanctions, be it on Russia or a Russia oil price cap, you're always welcome to send us an email with your question. People think it's just some inbox that we don't answer, but we actually answer every single email that comes in. And it's just OFAC underscore feedback at treasury.gov or just Google contact OFAC. There's also a phone number there. It's a bit archaic of a messaging system, but if you leave a message, we always return those within 24 to 48 hours as well. I think last year we answered something like 40,000 calls. So please, if you have questions, don't hesitate to uh, reach out so we can provide some informal guidance. And I can add, and I've said many times, that OFAC is a reasonably user-friendly federal agency. And, and they will get back to you and they will give you answers, but you can call me also. <laughs> okay, good to know, good to know. All right, with this, I think we can have a round of applause for our panel. Thank you, Thank you so much.